This morning, if you would, turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark. Gospel according to Mark, and we'll be in chapter 1, reading two verses from 14 and 15. Now just to remind you, we've been in a series of sermons, the first being the Majestic King, coming from Psalm 8, where the psalmist is talking about the majesty of the King of Kings. And then last week, we looked further into the Old Testament uh, to see how Jesus was and is the coming King of Kings in the Messiah. And of course, in the New Testament, as Jesus Himself, who institutes His own kingdom. And then this morning, as you can see, we are going to be dealing with Uh, more about the kingdom and this king uh, with the title, Thy Kingdom Come. Let's look here at Mark 1 and these two verses, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. This morning, would you speak to us, our hearts, convict us, encourage us, propel us on to your mission? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And at the end of that is thine kingdom forever. So, kingdoms mentioned twice in the Lord's Prayer. It's mentioned here in Mark and elsewhere all over the New Testament. It is essentially the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what He comes preaching. His very first sermon, which obviously is telling, is on the kingdom of God. But what is the kingdom of God? What does it mean for us to be a part of the kingdom of God? Uh, That's what I want to talk about this morning. It's what I want to bring out from Mark 1 here. Notice what is said here. John is arrested, he's put in prison, and then Jesus begins his ministry. Remember, John is the forerunner of the Messiah. The Messiah being the Anointed One, the one who we just finished singing about as the Anointed One. He's also, of course, the Messiah. That's what what the Messiah means, is Anointed One. And John goes before Him to prepare the way. And so Jesus allows this to happen and doesn't even start His ministry until John is put away. When He's put away, He preaches the same message that John had been preaching, and that was, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe in the gospel. Now there's several terms there that we often just gloss over, assuming we all understand what they mean. You know how that happens. You know, we just assume everybody knows what terms like gospel, kingdom, um, repent, believe. We, we just assume that, you know, hey, hey, we know what that means. But do we? What is meant by the gospel of God? Gospel is a term in the Greek... Euangelion, for those of you interested in the Greek, 
had to throw that out there. If I don't throw it out there, I forget it. Okay, just <clears throat> forgive me. Um, it was used by the emperors. Interestingly, now remember, in the ancient world, the emperors were divine, either divinely appointed or the son of one of the gods or a god himself. Some of the emperors didn't care too much for the title, but the reality was if the people thought you were a god, well, they respected you a little bit more. What came down the pike from your laws were respected more if you were seen as a god rather than just some other person that went to Harvard. And so when the emperor would make an edict or a law instituting something new, it would be called euangelion. Good news. Now, that didn't always mean it was good news, you understand. <laughs> Just like some laws that come into our land are not always good news, even though they're touted as good news, right? But it was called good news. This is where this term comes from. It's where we see it used in the first century. But the gospel writers, the euangelion writers, are talking about something different here when they talk about good news. I mean, we obviously know that. And yet, it still may have, you know, the, the, the secular meaning, so to speak, may be almost on mark. Because it is coming from the divine. Except this time, it's coming from the true king, not someone who's pretending to be a god, such as the emperor, and it's always real good news. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the good news of the true king. And his way or his order in the world. The way things should be. <clears throat> now it's interesting to think about this term kingdom. You remember in the Old Testament, which we've already talked about last week and, and hinted about the week before that, in the Old Testament, God institutes His own kingdom. I mean, essentially, Israel is a theocracy, which is a God-ruled nation. Even though they're given a king, the king always understood, well, he was supposed to understand, only a few of them did, that he wasn't the true king. He was a steward of kingship. This is why David is seen as the paragon, the uh, best king there is. The greatest example of what a king should be. Why? Because he understood that he wasn't in charge. He understood he was in charge only based on God's in charge-ness, so to speak. His kingdom. Now, Jeroboam is the exact opposite of David, who is Solomon's son, who rebels because he sets himself up as divine. Again, which was common in the ancient Near East, but not common in the Bible. <clears throat> you see, here's what's really fascinating to me. Well, here's what's been fascinating to me in the past few months. I came across an article in a, in a journal that I get, a Catholic journal called First Things. And it's dealing with morality. Basically the whole concept is morality has to be the first thing we go to if we're ever to have a successful nation, successful public square. Not good roads, not a good tax system, not a good this or that, but instead 
morality. All right, that's a side note. The point is, the article comes and says this, which blows my mind. We often read the Bible as revelation, right? Yeah, it's a revelation of God, sure. But do we ever read it as political science? I mean, let's just stop and think real quick. God set up His own government in the world, in one nation. What did that government look like? Now, I'm not going to expound on what the article says concerning that government other than to say God set up a limited government. It was limited because He was in control, not the people. He also set up a government that was morally based. That was essentially what determined whether they succeeded or they failed, was it not? Even kings who built a bunch of roads, such as Solomon, even kings who got them to a a world power status, if they disobeyed God morally, were they considered a good king? No. If they reduced taxes, if the economy was going well, but they were immoral and produced immorality, they were considered a wicked king. Why? Because God is more concerned with Morality, good and bad, according to His covenant, His relationship with us, than He is what we do for Him. Now that just goes to show you the background of God's kingdom set up in Israel. Now that carries over, because remember, the kingdom gets destroyed. The Assyrians come in, and wipe out the northern kingdom. They're never seen again. They're exiled into oblivion. The southern kingdom, where Jerusalem, where the temple is located, where the throne is located, it's destroyed by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. Or as our buddy used to say, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. You know, it's almost like he was sneezing as he was saying it. But a side note. He comes in and destroys them. They are exiled as well, but then God brings them back to a land that is desolated. It's almost like they got used to it. Hey, look, this church, God just protects this church just because it's His place, it's where He lives. God says, no, I don't just live in a church. I live everywhere. I'm not just located in Jerusalem. And so He wipes it off the face of the map. And then Jesus comes, preaching a kingdom. So you can understand how His first disciples, even the people who knew Him, when He says, The kingdom of God is at hand. They start saying, okay, let's sharpen our swords. Let's lock and load. It's time for rebellion. We're about to shake off Rome. The Messiah is about to arise and lead us into battle so that we can institute another kingdom like what we had in Israel. You can understand how they would start thinking this. It's the basis of this term, kingdom. But Jesus is instituting a new type of kingdom, is He not? (laughs) exactly what He's coming to do. Jesus has not come locked and loaded, but instead humble, a servant of all, riding on a baby donkey. Always give you the picture of His feet dragging the ground. Not on a big white horse like what's going to be at our house today. I don't know if it's going to be white, but it'll be a horse. He doesn't come riding in on a tank, but instead humble and lowly. 
Three things real quick concerning the kingdom of God. Number one, why does God's kingdom have to be instituted anyway? Why does, why does there need to be a change? Why didn't Israel... Why wasn't that enough? Why, why don't we just redo Israel? Because we're in a civil war. That's what this really is. You see, Christianity agrees with dualism that says there are two opposing forces in the world, good and evil. It just disagrees at the point where it says that there are independent powers. There are not two independent powers of good and evil that have always existed and will always be in conflict with one another. Rather, there's the good and rebellion happening within that good. In other words, God has never lost the throne. No one has ever taken the throne away from God. But rather, there's a rebellion going on within the true kingdom. Of course, this rebellion, you could say, begins with Satan. You could say it begins with us. Either way, we and Satan both have a rebellious nature against the nature of reality who is God and His kingdom in the world. So this is a civil war. Uh, It's why C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says... You could say that the true king has landed. You might say landed in disguise. Jesus, he came in disguise into enemy-occupied territory. And he says in there, it's the reason Satan doesn't want us to come to church. Because church is that place where we kind of listen in to the orders of the general off base as we're in behind enemy lines doing black ops missions. Covert sabotage. That's what C.S. Lewis says in his book. Now remember, his context is World War II. He writes this. These are lectures given over the radio in Mere Christianity as World War II is happening. The answer is not military. The answer is not another type of Israel dominating the world. The answer is in Jesus Christ. And His type of kingdom. And so what is His kingdom doing? We're trying to convert rebels. That's what our job is. If that's the picture, if the true king has landed behind enemy lines, I mean, you know how this works. We've all heard the CIA stories where they infiltrate a a nation that's already starting to crumble and we help the rebels. We arm them. We train them to overthrow their own government. That's what we're doing. As Christians, we're sabotaging the enemy. We're already behind enemy lines. That's why we talk about this world being His. And yet we know who the true King is, do we not? He's the rightful King. Let me, let me picture it for you this way. Think Chronicles of Narnia. The white witch. Yeah, the whole place is in snow. It's dark. It's cold. It hasn't been a Christmas in 30 years. We've not seen Christmas. It's always winter and never moving to spring or to summer or to fall. She thinks, and she has set herself up to be queen of Narnia. But is that true? Now she's got a huge army. But there's a rebellion taking place. 
people are converting to the promise, the prophecy, that one day Aslan will come. Who's the true owner? His father created everything. He Through him, by the way. Through his word. He sang it into existence, actually. Which, by the way, is the same thing that happens in Lord of the Rings. Creation is sung into existence. Isn't that fascinating? How both these guys who have brilliant Christian minds are saying the same thing in their imaginary world. The imaginary world that points to this world. They know a little something about the nature of reality. And of course, the, all you have to do is just overthrow the queen. I mean, how hard is it to get rid of snow? Put the sunlight on it. You know what's interesting is you can't measure cold. You can only measure heat. You can't turn on darkness. You can only turn out the light. These are physical laws in our world that we are aware of, but that point to God's world. We often say, it is very dark out there. It's very co- People are cold-hearted in this world. But you know what? What are we called to be? What does Jesus say in His Sermon on the Mount? You're called to be salt. You're called to be light. You're to bring flavor to this world. You're to, bring, you're to expose the darkness. That's all it takes. Turning on the light. We are lights in a dark world. That's how God's going to save the world. Is by raising up lights. So why does His kingdom need to be instituted? It's because we're in a civil war. Now, we already know their side isn't going to win. In the, we, I mean, you know, spoiler of all spoilers, we know the ending. They don't win. She said, well, why would people be on their side? It's a good question. And yet we've all been on that side, haven't we? We've all, even after being on the right side, have longed to be back on the wrong side. It's enticing. It seems fun. It seems like they're having all the fun. But what is reality? I mean, as an adult, you can't just remain a child. You have to understand that some things in the world may look enticing. C.S. Lewis, again, I, you know, I hate it, but all my original thoughts come from him. I'm sorry. He says, you know, bacon smells very different when you're hungry. And when you've already eaten, you go back into the kitchen, you smell it, it makes you want to throw up. It smells terrible. When you're hungry, that's all you can think about. But after the fact, you think, oh, wow, mmm. Isn't sin like that? Sin is so enticing. It's the only thing we can think about at the moment. But then after we do it, we feel dirty, shamed, a disaster. We're at war, but guess what? If you like being rebellious, get on the right side. We're the true rebels. The other group seems like acts like they're the rebels. 
It's easy to be bad. We've already established that. It is easy to be bad. Anybody can do it. Anybody can lie. It's difficult to tell the truth. Anyone can talk about somebody behind somebody else's back. That's why I never have understood you know, uh, high school cliques. I guess they're not meant to be understood. But the bad guy, he gets the fame. That's easy to do. Anybody can do that. Anybody can sleep with a bunch of people. That's easy to do. What is difficult to do is be obedient. The true rebellion leads to the right side. God's side. In the end, when the Calvary comes, as we know He will, when we get the message that He's on His way, don't be holding the enemy's gun. It'll be too late then. You all have already chosen sides. Secondly, this phrase, Thy kingdom come. So we know we need God's kingdom in the world. We're wanting... I mean, essentially, it's us calling for backup. Hey, we've established a base here behind enemy lines. Now we need backup. Your kingdom come. And what God says to us is, yes, my kingdom is going to come here and now. It won't just be at the end of time when the whole thing comes in. But I'm going to send some people now to reinforce you. And so we're, we're called... In the Lord's Prayer, as when, when, he, when the disciples say, hey look, teach us to pray, He says, pray that God's kingdom would come. That's what we're actually to pray. For that is the kingdom. Right? And the glory and the power forever. His kingdom is meant to be here and now. We are to pray for it now. Even when everything around us is crumbling. Morally. Structurally, whatever, financially. We're called to still be salt. To still show forth light. You think of Lord of the Rings in that last scene where they're up against the black gate of Mordor and all hope seems to be lost. And they're hoping beyond hope (laughs) for Frodo and Sam to make it. They don't even know if they're alive. A sacrifice needs to be made. And that's exactly what happens. I'm telling you, these guys are pointing toward reality. It's why their books become epic. They fall in line with the story of stories. The greatest story ever told. That's real. In a conversation that Tolkien had with Lewis... One afternoon as they were walking, they loved, both of them loved to walk through nature. And neither one of them drove. Uh, as they were walking, Tolkien said, all these myths that we've read, talking to Lewis, he said, this myth became real. That's the difference. All the other myths are pointing toward this one. And this myth became real. Several weeks later, Lewis converted to Christianity. And some think because of that conversation, this is the true story. All other stories are pointing toward this one in some way, if they, if they identify with reality at all. What is the kingdom of God? What is it? What does it look like? 
we know that the kingdom of God is mysterious. It's not something that can be easily defined. It's here and yet it's to come. We know that. We pray for it to come, but yet it's not all here. Apparently it's in us as well. The kingdom of God is ultimately Jesus Christ. He is the leader of His kingdom. Really, a better translation of kingdom of God may be Christ's lordship in the world. Is He Lord over finances? Is He Lord over our family? Is He Lord over our morals? Because once that's undercut, the tree will fall. The house will fall. Your life will fall if the foundation is cut out from underneath it. If the foundation isn't Christ, then it's not sure. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is instituted in real time and space. History. In the acts of Israel, God is setting up His kingdom. In Jesus Christ, God is setting up His kingdom. Jesus' person. is That's why the kingdom of God is in us. His Lordship is in us. We're saying to a world that cares nothing about Christ, no, He is my Lord. You, I mean, what is one of the most often personal names used for cursing? Jesus. Jesus Christ. God. Why do people not use Buddha? Mahavira. Gautama. You know, I never hear that. Brahma. You know. Vishnu. I just, I don't hear that. You don't know Vishnu. Jesus is the true king. And the rebels curse His name. That's the reality. His kingdom is also, interestingly, the church. Us. In this place, we're saying, Jesus Lord. It's the confession we make every Sunday. You are our Lord. It's what we say in our creed, isn't it? Our Lord. Lord or King. Lastly, what is the kingdom? What does it look like? Again, Jesus says it's like a seed that is the smallest of all seeds and yet grows into a great tree that produces much fruit. In other words, it has meager beginnings. And didn't Jesus have humble beginnings? Absolutely. His his kingdom isn't instituted by an atomic bomb. His his kingdom isn't instituted all over the media, scrolling underneath the little, little title there. But instead by one individual person and His blood of all things. He shed life for us. His sacrifice. That's how the kingdom begins. But it grows up into a great tree. Look at your own life. You're a direct result, if you're a follower of Jesus, of that sacrifice. Of someone's sacrifice. His kingdom is salt and light. It flavors this world. This world may think it has all the flavor. 
But once you taste of it, you see it's dull. You ever had that happen? Great looking meal spread out, but then you taste it and you're like, oh, hello. That's not what I was expecting. It looks so good and yet tastes so bad. I hope that doesn't describe your wife's cooking. Surely doesn't mind, as you already know. Actually, our church, uh, you can look around and see that there are excellent cooks in this place. Thank the Lord. Is your life dull? Have you kind of fizzled out? Are you looking for something? Has your relationship with God grown cold? Come to His kingdom. Accept His kingdom in your life. Have you wandered astray? Do you know that there's sin in your life? If there is, He is not Lord. That's tough. And yet it's the reality. We must struggle against sin. We must overcome sin and not allow it to overcome us. It's what, it's what we always pray. Keep us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but instead deliver us from evil. We must pray that. I'm afraid in our world, in our culture, we've allowed evil and sin to not scare us. I think sometimes we need to be scared to death of evil, of our family being ripped apart, of our marriage being torn apart. We need to be scared to death. Why? Because it's real. It happens all around us. And in that fear, we need to turn to the true fear of our life, and that is God. We are to fear Him alone, not this world. Why? Because He's overcome the world. God has already overcome the world in Jesus Christ. He's already instituted His kingdom. As a church, we're called to be salt and light. Ask yourself, am I being that each week? In my own life, am I, am I adding flavor to my workplace? The flavor of Christ. As Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, a sweet aroma of God in Christ Jesus. Do we have a personal relationship with the King? That's what we're meant for. None of this even makes sense without that. He is the true King. We must know Him. We must love Him. And ultimately, is Christ Lord over everything in your life? Your heart, your kids, your family. If He's not, the good news is, as it's coming off, the trend, you know, as it's coming off the printer, the good news is Jesus King. The good news is you can come to Him. The good news is He can forgive you. The good news is He can heal you. The good news is He can raise up His kingdom in us. Just imagine that. If we'll only let Him this morning. And so this morning as we move to our response time, I want to do a little something that we can do today differently in order to pray. As we said last week, this is a house of prayer. Most of all, this is a house of prayer. And as we've heard this Word from God and His Word, 
what is our response going to be? Will we allow Him to be King? Or will we set ourselves up as the false King, false God? Let us go to Him in prayer.